Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we're joined by Sarah Dusick, the founder of Under Canvas, a game-changing glamping experience that took America's national parks by storm. Now, these were no ordinary tents. They included flushing toilets, hot showers, and fresh linens. And if you're curious, there's a video walkthrough of these gorgeous tents under Sarah's episode page, which you can find over at builttosell.com. Also, there you'll find definitions for some of the more technical terms used in today's episode, including venture debt, warrants, liquidity preferences, implied EBITDA, and MES debt to help you follow along with today's conversation. Now, as you listen to Sarah, I want you to listen for the risk she took on to build under Canvas. Not sure I'd have the same courage to risk everything so many times over. Without further ado, sit tight as Sarah Dusick unpacks her high-risk, high-reward journey of selling under Canvas. Enjoy. Sarah Dusick, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Tell me the origin story of Under Canvas. How did this business get started? Under Canvas was a labor of love and and really was a, a business we fell into by accident because like many business owners, we were trying to solve a problem of how do we earn a living? Um, we had one failed business under our belt that that collapsed during the great financial crash of 2007, 2008. Um, and so we were back at the drawing board and my husband and I had recently moved to Montana where my husband's from. I'm British originally. And, um, my husband said, let's move, you know, we've lost everything in the UK. Let's move home, move to the farm and see if we can figure out a way to earn a living. And his family were farmers. Um, and when we got to Montana, I realized, oh gosh, my husband's like this huge outdoors guy and loves being out in big, wide open spaces and loves camping and being out in the rough. And like, I do not. <laughs> so we, we, we stumbled across the idea of thinking about sort of building a bridge for ourselves in the wilderness, which sparked an idea of like, oh, maybe we could create some kind of farm stay which led into, oh, and we could recreate the safari experience out here on the plains of Montana, um, which evolved into putting up beautiful tents and creating a small little tented camp and cooking and guiding and all the rest of it. You know, this living the dream kind of like a small hospitality business that we had no experience in, but it seemed like this, you know, idyllic kind of life. So the original idea was to basically replicate the Botswana and this in, yes. in the African model of these glamping yes. tents, these very fancy sort of uh, retreats into the wild. But exactly. when rich people do them from North America, they go to Africa, they want certain niceties, right? They want the nice coverage and the gin and tonic at 5 p.m. and the, and the, and the very sort of and wonderful we, experience. We could do all of that too. Uh, just on with different wildlife on the Montana prairie. So that was the original idea. That was the original idea. How did it go from there? Um, what was interesting was what we realized quickly was A, it isn't as idyllic as it looks. And I still get loads of phone calls from people saying, I want to go into the glamping business. I want to, we want a piece of land and we want to host guests. And I go, mm. 
<laughs> you know how hard this is? You know, you know, people think about, I want to quit my nine to five job and, you know, live off the land. And I'm like, gosh, you're going to trade your nine to five job for like a 24 seven job with caring for guests around the clock. Um, so certainly not idyllic. Um, and what we realized was it was really hard actually to persuade people to come out to the middle of nowhere in on the Montana Prairie. But what we did realize was people loved our tents um, and people would call us saying, where did you get them? They're so beautiful. They're really amazing. And I would like, well, just come and stay with us. <laughs> and these tents, did you manufacture them or were you buying them from someone else? Yes. Yeah, so my husband designed our tents. So we, we, he designed them and we had them manufactured. So they were uniquely our designs, um, which was really fun and really cool, but no one wanted to come and stay. So we weren't earning a living. We were burning cash, you know, as like it was just disappearing, going in one end and coming out the other. It was just gone. Um, and so our idyllic sort of life on the farm was not happening. <laughs> so that forced us to think about pivoting. It forced us to take a long, hard look at what we were doing and go, OK, this is not a business model that's going to we're not going to last very long because we're just barely scraping by and barely getting enough guests to come and stay with us. So it, it forced us to reinvent our business model. And what did you reinvent it into? We had a couple of iterations that the next one was, was an event company, which actually was really quite successful. But I, interestingly, I say all the time, we ended up with a, a tent rental business where we would take our beautiful tents and set them up for your wedding or your event or, you know, a family reunion. And we would drive with them all over the country. What was fascinating about that business model uh, and we earned really good money. We made about a million dollars, eventually earned about a million dollars a year with that business. So some people might say, wow, that's an amazing business. You've got to a million dollars. You know, very few people do that. That's fantastic. But what we realized was this business is not very scalable and it's also not very dependable, which means we were waiting for people to call us and decide, I'd like my wedding to be with you and would you come and do my tent? So there was not much about the business that was our, in our control, which meant you can't control your expense, you can't control your revenue, therefore you can't manage your expenses very well. It's all a bit hit and miss, and you certainly can't think about scaling it. So whatever we did with that business, however we tried to market it, we, we kept sort of coming back with about doing the about the same amount of events every year and making about the same kind of money one way or another. And we realized, okay. This is a good business, but it's not a great business. We and just to be clear, Sarah, I just want to make sure I'm, I just want to make sure I'm following along. Okay. When you said when you said this is a good business, are you referring to the event business? Yes. Okay. And that was hosting events. I'm just unclear as to whether you're hosting your own events or whether you're shipping tents to we're someone taking, else's event. We're taking our tents to someone else's event. So that might have been Got a music it. festival, it might have been a wedding. But typically driving somewhere with tents and a big truck and Got showing it. up and setting them up for someone else. Super helpful. And you built that business to a million dollars in revenue? Yes, we did. Okay. Got and it. Great profit margins. So a great little business, you know, and arguably a really good sized business. Um, but what we realized was this business is always going to stay about like this, you know, maybe regardless of what we do. Maybe we can tweak a few things here and there and we can make, you know, maybe inspire a few more people to have amazing events. But 
can't really control our own destiny, can't really grow and scale this thing. And so we made another pivot, which was really um, a brave thing to do when you've got a business that's working. And, and that's, I think, sometimes where people go wrong is they settle for something that's good and don't pursue something that's great. And we knew if we're going to build a sustainable, long-lasting, really valuable business, we need to build a business that has the potential for scale. I'm going to push on that idea a little bit, but before I do, I want to go back to the pivot. So, so what was the next pivot? So you had the events business, you're driving around a truck, you're dropping off tents for music festivals and stuff. What was the next pivot? Our third and final pivot was what Under Canvas became and still is today, which was we, we ended up creating large-scale tented hotels outside of national parks across the states. So instead of waiting for the phone to ring and people calling us to say, hey, would you come and set up tents for our wedding? We would set up the tents um, on our own land or leased land um, and invite guests to come and stay for the night whilst they're visiting a national park. So just like you would check in for a hotel, you could check in and stay with us in a tented hotel. So cool. So I'm going to Yosemite, I'm taking the kids, and instead of staying at the best Western in town, I could stay right on the, yes. the, the adjacent land next to Yosemite and, National and Park. have an incredible experience and sit out under the stars with your kids and make s'mores and you know, sit around a campfire and have great fun. So cool. And this is ignorant, my ignorance coming through, but are you able to camp inside a national park or was there something about being adjacent to the outside, outdoor, like out of the park that was important? Yeah. So you, so we couldn't ever set up inside a national park. You have to be a national park concessionaire to, you know, or own a campsite in a national park. Yeah. So we, we didn't own one of those. So we always set up on private land outside of a national park and created you know, a, a pre-set up tinted experience for you with incredible, nice beds, flushing toilets, hot showers in your tent, you know, beautiful linens, et cetera. Like a, Sounds amazing. Really like a safari experience, um, except right here in the States. And so you, it sounds like you both leased land as well as purchased land. When did you purchase and when did you lease? Yeah, we, we leased in our early days while well, we didn't have any cash to, to buy land and, and gradually um, we managed to buy, buy land to be able to set up our own camps on. Got it. Okay. So here's where I want to, uh, go further on the financing piece, because you mentioned you lost your, you know, all your money in, in the UK and you kind of moved to Montana. So how did you get the money to build the first tents? Cause I know a lot of people struggle with hard goods kind of businesses when they can design it on paper, how they you know want it to look, but to actually commission with a manufacturer, most manufacturers want to be paid up front and they're like, you're a new startup. We'll need, you know, like proof of cash flow. How did you get the money to build the first tent? We begged and borrowed. So friends and family effectively were our, were our first our first go-to. And, you know, as you said, we, we'd lost all of the money that we had, which wasn't a lot. Um, and I think we borrowed $40,000 from my husband's family and we had friends come and 
work with us for free, volunteer. They didn't really work for, they didn't really work for anything, volunteer for free for a few months to come and help us build and set up and dig trenches and help put sewer systems in and tiling and all the rest of it. Awesome. And to be clear, the the money that you borrowed, it wasn't convertible debt. You weren't giving, entitling them to some equity down the road. It was simply like, here's some money, we'll pay it back. Got it. Okay. That's super clear. How did the financing of the business evolve as you grew? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. We had a pretty, pretty wild ride. So in the early days when we were on our third pivot, um, we were juggling credit cards. I had a lot of credit cards with a lot of zero interest balances. And I was trying to trade one from another and move money around and take out another one. So uh, we had several hundred thousand dollars of credit card debt in the in the early days, so that was pretty scary. Um, but but often we our guests helped us a lot by prepaying in advance to come and stay with us. So that was a that was a huge help. But ultimately, the biggest leg up we got in the early days was um, our local bank um, helped us uh, get an equipment loan, uh, and that really helped us to buy more tents and buy more equipment consolidate some of that credit card debt. And that was, again, like a bank uh, loan where there's interest that gets paid, but it's not convertible into equity or anything like that. It's just a a straight loan. And did you personally guarantee that loan? I did. Yes. Got it. Which is kind of crazy because there was really nothing the bank could have taken from me that would have been valuable to them. (laughs) Yeah. The old blood from a stone. (laughs) So how did the financing evolve as you grew? Because this business, although you're you know, in the early days, it was, it was, it sounds very modest and small. It, it grew to be a, a very large business, ultimately hundreds of it, employees, I think. Yes, that's right. Um, yes, it, it grew rapidly. Um, and we, we levered a combination of bank debt. Um, we had one early guest who stayed with us one time who offered up some um, some venture debt effectively, and they took a warrant in the business and also put some debt uh, into the company. That was helpful. Um, later then, we raised, much later, uh, must have been six, seven years before we raised a really sort of decent round of institutional capital. Um, so we went a long time effectively bootstrapping and, and levering debt facilities. Um, before we took any real equity into the business. Got it. So um, the venture debt, can you describe for my edification as well as our listeners who may not be familiar with the term venture debt and yes. a warrant in layperson's terms, what are those things? Yeah. So debt is still just debt. You're paying interest, you know, like any other kind of debt. The difference being with venture debt is, Often, you know, this debt lender realized we didn't have a lot of collateral that he could lever his debt against. So we still had some bank loans. So he wasn't going to be in first position on any assets we had or land or any of those other things, but he needed some collateral. So if I'm not paying my debt back, right, he wants some way to get it back or and or some kind of kicker for taking a risk for giving us effectively unsecured money. So he gave us, I think he had a warrant for like 4% of the company, which he could exercise for a dollar. So if we ever 
uh, were in trouble with our debt, for example, he could exercise his warrant and own 4% of the company. And if we raised capital at some point in the future, when the company was much more valuable, could still buy, you know, for a dollar, uh, 4% of the company, regardless of what the new valuation was. So his potential share would become uh, very valuable to him in the future. Got it. That's super helpful. Thanks for that explanation. So walk me, can you walk me through the rest of the fundraising uh, efforts? So you mentioned after the venture debt, uh, there was a significant round of, of, of equity yes. raised. And, and before you explain that, I'd just be curious, what was, the, what was the trigger? Why did you need the money? That kind of stuff? Yeah. So we, we were profitable as soon as sort of we launched our under canvas national parks model. Within that very first year, we were, we were profitable, which is unusual for a business. Um, but I literally, you know, we had robbed Peter to pay Paul and we'd kept our expenses very low and certainly not employed as many people as we should have. Um, but we realized we've got a profitable business model and we had a business model where our guests would pay in advance to come and stay with us. So if you were coming to stay on holiday with us next year, you might pay this year and pay for your room right now. So advanced deposits helped us. Um, venture, some venture debt helped us um, and being profitable really, really helped us along with sort of managing our costs and keeping them as low as we could. So within two years, we had three, well, two seasons of one camp and our third year, we managed to open two more camps. Um, so by the end of three years, we had three camps open. Um, and by the end of five, years we had four year, four camps open but we realized if we were going to grow faster if we were going to scale the business faster you know and we believed we could you know be in every national park across the country and you know there could be lots and lots and lots of these under canvases everywhere um we realized we had to move faster and we were starting to see competition come into our space so other people were seeing the idea that we had and thinking well that's a good idea let's do that so we realized Okay, if we're going to keep pole position in our race here, if we're going to own own this market and really dominate in the space and really be the best at what we do, we need to grow faster. So that was really the impetus for then thinking, okay, well, we can't just keep plowing our profits back. The debt we've not got is not going to be enough. We can't put enough debt on the business to grow fast enough. So we went out to raise some equity, um, which was a pretty horrific, difficult experience. <laughs> <laughs> what, what made it so horrific and difficult? Um, I think I naively didn't understand how the space worked. And I also found the space to be quite predatory. And as a female CEO, I just wasn't taken seriously a lot of the time. And, and I wasn't building a tech company either. So I was in a nascent space that nobody really understood and it. It wasn't bricks and mortar, so it wasn't a real estate play and it wasn't a tech play. So I didn't fit anywhere. And so people just didn't understand it. Uh, and this was really before, you know, glamping was a, considered to be an asset class. We were sort of the pioneers of it as an industry. So it was just very early and, uh, and it, was, it was very difficult. And by the time I finally got a term sheet to the table from a large fund on the east coast the terms were were awful um i knew i was getting a lower valuation than one of my male counterparts that i knew had recently raised 
for his startup idea when he hadn't even executed anything yet. And I had three, four camps open and was getting a lower valuation. And so it just didn't make sense. So what was the valuation they were putting on the business with four camps? I think at that point we were a $15 million valuation, but I had probably $3 million of EBITDA and, you know, we were growing rapidly. So it just didn't make any sense to me. We were probably doing like seven or $8 million of, um, uh, of revenue. And so for a $15 million valuation, I just, just was feeling like I'm going to give up an awful lot of my company. Um, when I think we're, we're worth more than that. How, how big a round were you trying to raise? We were trying to raise five or 6 million. Okay. Got it. So your valuation was 15. So you, you'd have to give up roughly a third of the business to, yeah. to, uh, and that felt like a lot for a profitable business at that stage, um, with great margins, great growth potential. And it, it just didn't, it didn't sit well. And the, the deal we were being offered was had like a three X preference on it. And so it just was, it was rough. It was really just rough. Describe what a three X preference is for folks who, who may be unfamiliar with that term. Yeah. Preference, preference is that there's several different types of shares and you know, there's your traditional common stock, and then there's preference stock. So the idea with preference stock is that those shares get priority. They get preference effectively over anyone else's. So if someone has got a 3x preference, it means their shares um, are going to be worth three times as much as when they, you know, the, the, found, the investor put them in. So if you put a million dollars worth in and had 3x preference, you're guaranteed I'm getting a 3x I'm getting three times back. I'm getting three million back. If you put 10 million, I'm getting 30 million back. So depending on your valuation, and that means what's left over after that is getting split up between everyone else who's got common stock. So those can be pretty punitive. So my investor had a 3x preference uh, and he invested, say, 5 million in my company, and my company was only worth 15 million at the start. He's saying, well, I'm going to get 15 million before you're going to get any money back, which means depending on how fast my company has grown, I, I may not do very well out of that. Let me just pause there. Thank you for that explanation. Wonderful. So the 3X liquidity preference, so valuation of 15 million, you're looking to raise, how, you said you're looking to raise around 5 million, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so... That doesn't sound like a great deal. I get no, that. I also think there may be people listening saying, why on earth would you want to scale this company? Because as I understand it, five years previous, you'd been washed out. You had nothing to show for the business that you started in the UK. You're moved to Montana, living off the land, juggling credit cards. I mean, I think a lot of people would have gotten to a business with $3 million of EBITDA. Like I couldn't spend $3 million worth of cash flow if, you, like, if, I, you know, if, if I had a really expensive uh, habits. Um, yet here you are with a business with $3 million of EBITDA that you own the vast majority of it, you know, notwithstanding this 4% venture debt or these warrants. Um, why not just put it in cruise control and 
and run a very profitable cash flow positive business? This sounds like a dream come true. Why, why scale? That is a great question. Um, and I think the answer to that question, I know what the answer to that question is, is there is a very real risk. <clears throat> if you settle and if you play it safe, that you will get taken out. And okay, so- but, there, but I'm gonna push there because there's lots of examples of companies that throttle back their growth, lots mm-hmm. of very, very premium brands, yeah. all the LVMH kind of ones come to mind where they're like, no, no, we wanna build a hundred year business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're happy growing five, 10% top line, we want fat EBITDA margins. We have no interest in growing. Yes, there are competitors. Like, why did you, like, like, I would be curious, like, like, I get the theory behind never standing still. I, like, I have, I've heard the theory, but I, I'd really like to get inside Sarah's head and Jacob's head to the extent that he was part of this decision at all. And I want to understand, like, why did you as a husband and wife want to scale I think there's more to the story than just the, like, we didn't want to stand still. Fair? A hundred percent fair. Yeah. And we, both my husband and I would say we're very driven. Um, no doubt about it. But I think um, the, the, the big motivator, the two factors, and, and the reason I gave in the, in the first case is definitely part of the truth in the sense of there was a very, very real risk that you could lose everything if you didn't keep growing, didn't keep diversifying, didn't keep, you know, because our business was quite a fragile business and that was reliant on the weather, windstorms, rainstorms, snowstorms, smoke can all have an effect on an outdoor business. So if one locations go down, you know, you've lost maybe half your income. So being able to diversify our own portfolio by spreading our risk across multiple locations, I think neither of us really had ambitions to be small business people um, and to sit back and retire at 30 and call it good with $3 million in the bank. And in the reality, $3 million of EBITDA is not $3 million of cash in the bank, right? Because you're still servicing your debt after that, and and you're not you're not got three million dollars of free cash flow. I mean, we barely had a dollar of free free cash flow ever, especially if you're needing to improve, fix, maintain what you've got. So there was there was a very real thinking around um, trying to build a very robust, defensible, well insulated business build a strong brand that would also help us do that and feel like um, we could invest ourselves in something that we cared about and have a voice into a space um, that mattered. And you know, one of the interesting things for us was when we started developing camps, we wanted people to access the outdoors and care about connecting with each other Um, And so we found there were all sorts of meaningful ways that our business could um, effectively do good and be a voice into our culture and into our way of being and a way of existing 
um, that potentially could drive change. And that felt important and that felt significant. Did you consider selling the company at this stage? No. As you look back, the sands of time have passed and you look back on this entire journey. Is there any part of you that thinks, hmm, we should have kept 100% for ourselves and run it? Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, um, in an ideal world, yeah, yeah, I still would be doing that. Um, the, the challenges of growing a business and scaling it and giving up pieces of that pie are arduous and difficult and you know finding the right partners to go on journeys with you to make things happen is is really really critical and you know just like you know you nobody should really get married without some serious thought and dating <laughs> before you get married you know so is part of the case with you know getting in bed with investors is you know you really ideally want to be aligned and you really want to have the same mind and the same way of looking at the world and um, and going on it so that you can go on a journey together, because uh, otherwise that's pretty arduous and pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. It sounds like perhaps there's some stories here. So let's get into it. So the first <laughs> attempts to raise money were hard. The first term she yes. got was punitive. Yes. Where does it go from there? Yeah. So I mean, that's the wrestle. We we've been on a knife edge with you know lack of cash and lack of cash flow you know, five years or more than, more than five years. And, you know, had a lot of debt to service and had a lot on the line, a lot of personal guarantees. And so we needed more cash in the business and we wanted to keep growing. But when we were faced, they offered us $7 million and I'd only asked for five. Um, so they were offering more than, you know, I'd asked for, which, you know, potentially was even more attractive because you think, oh, wow, that's, that's even better than I thought, than I thought. But at the same time, you know, we stood back and looked at the offer and went, I just, we just, we can't, we shouldn't, and we couldn't do this. And not only was the offer not great, our sense of alignment with the folks making the offer was just, was not good at all. But yet, you know, there's- What was what, misaligned? Well, I, I could tell you several stories of, of incidents that happened, at, you know, of, of Things when you realize, oh gosh, this person's just not treating me the way I think I should be treated. Like, like, like what? Decent human being. Um, there was an incident just before we, well, I was trying to close on a piece of property for a new camp while we were in the middle of negotiating this deal with investors and something went wrong with it. And I immediately called them up and said, oh, I just got to tell you, <laughs> I'm sorting this problem out, but I need you to know there's a problem with X, Y, and Z. I'm dealing with it. I've got some lawyers. We think this, this can be sorted out. We think we will win. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a big deal, but it's a bump in the road, and I've got to tell you about it. And this guy really lost his shit with me, and he, he, he basically said to me, that is very bad for you. Very, very bad. If you don't sort that out, that is not looking good for you. And there's going to be trouble for you. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean there's going to be trouble for me? 
this is going to be difficult is for the company if this doesn't resolve what do you mean that's going to be this is my company and and i suddenly realized you know what um you are a bully and i don't need that kind of stress in my life running a business is already stressful it's already demanding and already very difficult with enough challenges in the road and i and i realized i just didn't need people on my team and this guy was going to be like on theoretically on my side running my company with you know invested in my company on my journey with me and i realized gosh if you're not on my side today and that isn't suddenly going to change tomorrow when we've done our deal and so i i i was like i I was, we were already umming and ahhing over these terrible terms and trying to wrestle ourselves into we should do them because we really need the money. And when this happened, I was like, that's, that's it. It's really clear. I, I want to divorce you already and we're not even married. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're done. And so I called him back and politely said, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to spend, spend time and energy on this with us. We, we're going we're gonna to pass. We're going to go in a different direction. And again, he went mental and basically said to me, you know, I'm going to blacklist you. You're never going to get money from anyone. I knew everybody in this industry, everyone in the VC space, and you're never going to raise money from any. And it just went on this like tirade. And I was like, well, if I wasn't certain before and I, you know, I was worried about my decision, I'm really not worried about this decision now because you are definitely not someone I want to do business with. And you know, I, I stood in front of the, the company a few days after that and cried. I literally sobbed my heart out <laughs> as I told them how close we'd got to like doing a financing deal. And I, I had pulled the plug, like it had fallen apart because I had said no. But in that moment, I realized my, our values, my values were just crystal clear. And I just knew you know, I, this is the way I, I'm going to do business. This is who I'm going to do business with. This is how I'm going to behave. This is what I care about. I, you know, and this is, this is what matters to me. And I, I can't do business or do deals with people who are going to treat me like that. And certainly not going to be on my side or champion. So, so you kicked him to the curb. Where, where does it go from there? Yeah. The curb was a very desperate very terrible place. I, I licked my wounds for a good few weeks, <laughs> but you know, I've still got bills to pay and we've still got, you know, demands and now lawyer bills and a whole bunch of other costs to cover. Um, and miraculously, I call it miraculous because it, it literally was a lifeline out of nowhere. I got an email from a, from a broker who literally out of the blue you know, we all get them solicitations in our inbox all the time. And we always just press delete. Right. But this time I didn't. Um, and a broker from San Francisco called me and said, been following your business for a while. Looks like you've got a super, super business. Could we help you raise some capital? And I was like, well, I haven't been able to pull this thing off and pull this to the table and get people I like to back me. So sure, knock your socks off. If you think you can do it, go for it. So I said, uh, I said he wanted an upfront fee, which scared the living daylights out of me because I didn't know if he could do it or not. But I said yes, because I didn't, I couldn't imagine another way I was going to raise capital. So I said yes to a broker fee. 
and off he went and uh, must have been within six months of that first meeting we we closed our big way bigger financing deal wow and so tell me about that financing deal what were the what were the kind of what was the valuation what were the terms that kind of stuff? yeah so that deal was amazing and and what the broker was really excellent at was getting inside my head and helping me understand what a great investor in my business might look like like because there what i hadn't realized was there are all sorts of smorgasbords of capital out there there's mm-hmm. not one kind of capital and i i had no experience with the markets and i didn't really understand venture and didn't really understand all all the possibilities and so he just he basically sort of got inside my head and came back to us and said you know because you've got a great cash flowing business I think your business could actually take on more debt than it currently has got. We could consolidate the debt that you've got. We could do a big transaction. We could put a little piece of equity in and a really, really big chunk of debt. And actually, then you won't need to give up very much for your company. And you could do a whole lot more before you need to raise more capital. Um, and so that was what happened. We raised about we raised about $15, 16000000 million. Um, most of which was debt, a little bit of equity went into the business um, and a big chunk of it went into debt, consolidated our rest of our debt that we had on the books um, and helped us grow amazingly over the next sort of 12, 12 18 months post that investment. The debt, that's super helpful. Was it more this venture debt where they had- No, it was, or, it was because of- they took a piece of equity of the company. They actually took equity in the company they, they, it was what is classic, classically called mezzanine debt. So mezzanine debt is debt that also is typically unsecured, i.e. it didn't have enough assets or buildings to collateralize the debt, typically more expensive than normal bank debt, um, but not as expensive as giving away big chunks of your company effectively. Can you recall what the interest rate was on it? I think it was, you know, people have, you know, balked at the interest rate today. And I think that interest was like uh, maybe a 13, 12, 13%. Wow. Okay. And, and roughly what time, what, what year was this? We were in 2017. 2017. Okay. So this was really low interest rate era. Yeah. But this, so was, 13% this, was, was, high risk, this was high risk debt, right? So yeah. I didn't have enough cash flow to service my debt. So the debt was going to service the debt for a while until, you know, our cash flow would catch up from building new camps. Because when you build a new camp, it's not instantly producing cash flow. So mm-hmm. it was it was risky debt into the business. And what was the recourse? Were they if if you had defaulted on that debt, what was their what were they entitled to? Yeah, I think we had pledged our shares. So our shares were our shares were effectively our collateral on the debt. Got it. So they lent this money at a relatively high interest rate. They also got a piece of equity. Do you recall how much equity they got? I don't know what their percentage was. I can't really remember. I don't think it was. What's that? Less than 10 for sure. Got it. So they got a piece of equity. They put this big line, you know, debt facility on the business. And if you had defaulted on the debt, then you would have, they would have basically taken your business effectively or had the shares. Yeah. Did you personally guarantee that mezzanine debt? 
Yeah. Another personal guarantee. Okay, so <laughs> you guys are all in. Personal <laughs> meaningless guarantee. <laughs> well, it, meaningless, yeah, I guess. But at this point, you've got a you know successful, a profitable yeah. company. Yeah, but yeah, but that that's really all I had. So we didn't have any other assets outside the business. We were we were broke other than the business. I keep I keep coming back to this idea because I think a lot of people, having had a challenging financial situation like a would have reached, you know, gotten back to yeah. uh, a point of, of success and thought, I don't want to risk it all. And they become much more fiscally conservative. Totally. But that's, that's the game. I think, I think mm. that, that those, there's high risk and high reward and low risk mm. and low reward. And those, that is a reality. And I think, you know, I've always often said that there's never been a better risk than I've taken than when I'm betting on myself. Mm. So, you know, it's a lot riskier, I think, to bet on something else or someone else than it is to invest in yourself. And I always laugh when people say, oh, you know, you should get a job and go work at IBM or a bank. And I think like you want to talk about risky. I mean, you could be wiped out by the stroke of a pen when the CEO says drop 10%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no guarantees in life. Right. So, you know, when you when you make bets and you take risks on yourself, you're you know, you're betting on yourself. And that's that's this is a big risk, Sarah. This is a huge risk. Huge risk. Okay, so you got 16 million bucks to go buy land, lease more land, build all the tents that you could possibly want. Where does it go from there? Um, well, I spend it all uh, and execute on that, uh, deploying that capital really effectively, really efficiently, and really, really driving growth. So we had an, we had an amazing next 12 months where we opened. Uh, think three new camps in one year. Uh, I built a bunch more pipeline to keep growing beyond that. Um, and then realized, oh, I'm going to need more capital because I spent all the money I just, <laughs> just raised. I'm seeing a pattern here, Sarah. Uh, so yeah, I'm going I'm to go again. I'm going to go again. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep building this thing, keep growing it. And, you know, by this point, probably had about 600, 600 employees, seasonal and permanent. Um, the company was quite large. I remember how much revenue we were doing, but um, we'd we'd grown. I mean, really, really rapidly. I think we made the Inc. 500 list. I think we came out like 527 that year, or something like one of the fastest growing companies in America. Um, and we were we were going for it, and um, we went back to our current investors and said, "What should we do? Um, shall we? What should you know? How should we? How should we fund our next fund and they, next fundraise?" And they said, "Well, I think we should go back out to market and see." See, uh, see how the market's valuing you now, and how what the market says about where we're at. Um, so they, at their advice, said, "Let's let's bring an investment banker in. Let's go and see if we can uh, bring someone to the table to help bring you to market, um, and we'll see we'll see what magic they can work." So that's what we did. And so you don't really recall how much revenue you had at this time? Could you ballpark it? Yeah, as crazy as that is, I really don't. I don't really remember what we were doing at that point in time. Every year kind of blurs into one another. Okay. So you 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 bring on an investment banker to to yeah. go raise more money. And at this at this point, are you thinking uh 
majority recapitalization or are you still thinking like sell a, a, a small chunk of the business? Yeah, I still still own the majority. I mean, still own the majority of the company. But I think at that point, um, we did realize all our eggs are in one basket and we've lived on a knife edge now for almost a decade of plowing everything we've got and everything that we are is in this business. So it would be good to take some chips off the table. Um, mm -hmm. and cash out a little bit. So we were thinking, uh, you know, and the investment banker advised at that point, said you probably could take some money out of the business at this point because it's probably big enough now. Um, so we had that in the back of our minds, um, but we weren't certainly weren't thinking about selling the business, um, weren't really thinking about giving up control. Um, but so we just thought, well, we'll see We'll see what happens and we'll see what, what offers come in and, and what the market's saying. And entrepreneurs, I'm, I'm a venture capitalist myself now, and entrepreneurs often ask me about, you know, sharing their valuation and going out to market with your valuation. And I often say to people, just don't do that. Um, I know it's tempting to say, I want to give away, like you do on Shark Tank and say, I want to give away 10% of my company for $100,000. And I'm like, mm. don't do that. Um, and there's there's two reasons for that. And one one is, you know, investors are seeing a myriad of deals every single day and have a much better finger on the pulse on what something's worth than you ever will in your bubble as the entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs love to think they're really, really valuable without any sense of comparison or out, without any sense of what things are trading at in your space in your industry so I'll so at this stage don't do it just don't don't give your okay, so at, this, at this stage you chose not to get, put a value on the company you went to market these are our specs this is our revenues number of employees etc yeah. and 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 did you did you give any sense of how much money you were trying to raise yes or? yes so we said you know we were trying to raise you know i think we were trying to raise 30 million dollars 30 million okay yeah. So I'd raised 15 million the previous time and realized, oh, gosh, I can spend that pretty fast. So let's let's raise another 30 uh, and that might buy us a little bit more time. I should have asked this earlier, but with the 16 million dollar raise and the mezzanine debt at 13 percent. I'm assuming you are buying dirt yes. next to adjacent to these so that there was some value to the dirt if all hell had broken yeah. loose. Yeah, absolutely. We had quite a bit of real estate by this point in time. Yeah. Okay. Super helpful. So you're you're saying we got, we want to raise thirty million. What you did not do, if I'm understanding correctly, is say, and that will buy you X percent of our business. Correct. You just said we're looking to raise thirty million dollars, and and so what happened next? Yeah. So with the help of um, investment bankers, they they packaged us up, and you know. Did a great presentation of, you know, presenting all our best features to the market, you know, much like an estate agent does when they're trying mm. to sell your house, or a realtor does when they're selling your house, and um, put us out there um, to see who might be interested in coming on our journey and, and joining our, our, our next, you know, phase of the, the company. What surprised you at that stage in terms of what the investment banker tried to did put in the teaser and in the confidential information memorandum. I'd be curious to know what they added in the way of stats, data, insights that you were like, huh, I wonder why they added that point or that 
uh, attributes. Yeah, well, I think one of the most fascinating things that I learned, which I had not um, known or anticipated before, was um, they presented the way they presented our financial information, um, which is obviously the most important piece of information mm-hmm. when going out to raise money, is how your financials look is really, really important. And how you're projecting your financials is also really, really important. So they so did what? They they included um, what would what is, I guess, technically called implied or embedded EBITDA. And by that, I mean, um, say this year we were going to do X million of actual EBITDA. But because we were building new locations um, that effectively would have their own EBITDA in time, they gave us credit for what we had built but hadn't realized yet. So there was a difference between I've built one tented hotel and we expect it to do X amount of EBITDA, just hasn't done it yet because it only just opened like yesterday. Um, So they gave us credit and they built in, well, it's already built, it's already done, just hasn't actually happened yet. But But it will based on the fact that all these others have performed like this. So using historical data and historical trends, they projected out um, utilizing sort of the three new camps I had just built that year, just opened, projected out what they would actually do in a few years' time. Awesome. So they that was super helpful. Pretty up your yeah. 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 And and helped us project, you know, what we could achieve year over year um, and where we might get to in, you know, three or four years or five years' time. And the other thing I hadn't realized, which you know, most people I think don't realize is you are not just selling your business today. You are selling what someone else might be able to sell in five years from now. So investors, particularly investors, not necessarily strategics who want to hold your business forever, but people who want to buy your business like a private equity firm, might look at your business and go, okay, here's where it's at today. What is it going to be doing in five years' time? How much growth is it going to have on top of where it's at today that will be valuable to me in the future to resell this business? And so they did, the broker did a really, really good job. The investment banker did a really good job of demonstrating, okay, here's what we think the business is worth today, but here's what it could be worth because of here's where its EBITDA will be in five years from now, which therefore you should think about paying this today because here's what you're going to get five years from now. And what did they get? Wow. <laughs> um, I sold the business almost five years ago now. And um, when I stayed on as CEO post one year uh, after selling the company, and uh, the, the business was worth well over $100 million by the time I left. And this was the final transaction you're referring to, this $30 million money raise. How did it go from raising money to an outright acquisition? Yeah, well, they basically made us an offer we couldn't turn down. We'd have been crazy to have turned down having, you know, all our eggs in this one basket and no money in our personal bank account. Um, We'd have been crazy to have, uh, as you, I, I felt crazy just listening to you you know, checking on me saying, Sarah, you have three million dollars of EBITDA. I was like, what was I thinking? I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> um, so eventually they they made us an offer that we we couldn't turn down. And so we sold the majority of the company 
Um, we kept about 20, 25% of the company and they took uh, majority control. And we uh, transitioned out of majority ownership. What happened to the mezzanine debt facility providers? So the, they're this, the $16 million raise, you have uh, largely debt uh, that is at, at a very high interest rate. What, um, what happened to them? They when, stayed in. Yeah, they stayed, in. they stayed in. So their debt stayed. I see. So their debt stayed, meaning the new owners uh, basically un, uh, undertook to to continue to pay this very yeah. high interest rate over yeah. time to pay off that debt. Yeah, got it. And, got and eventually, it. they they recapitalized the business, took out that debt, replaced it with cheaper debt, put more debt in the business. Okay. Eventually. Understood. And. Knowing what you know now as a sophisticated financier that you are today, albeit learning all this through kind of trial and error, what might you do differently uh, if you had it all over to do again? I'm thinking specifically around the financing piece because there is part of me that says, you know, gosh, a $15 million top line business that you owned outright, almost 100% of $3 million of EBITDA, like you, you probably could have sold that for a decent chunk of change. Again, I, I know we can't, maybe you're, you're not able to share exactly what you took out of the deal when you sold your company, but I'm guessing those numbers may have been somewhat similar. Tell me if I'm totally... No, they were not similar, not okay. in any way. <laughs> Super helpful. And so maybe walk me through the math in terms of why, why not? Yeah. Um, I mean, if I go back to your original question, so what would I do, what would I do differently? Mm -hmm. um, I definitely would have hired a CFO earlier. And I know many small businesses, you know, and even businesses doing five, six, seven million dollars of revenue. I think I was doing like seven or eight million dollars of revenue with no CFO. And I think that's not unusual. Um, we had a, you know, a financial control controller and we had a, an accounting team. We didn't have a sophisticated um, financial reporting mechanism. We didn't have anyone sort of really looking um at the business, helping me forecast. I mean, I was holding a lot of our numbers in my head, even with doing that much revenue. And they, my head was, my maths was pretty good, right? But I, it wasn't sophisticated enough for presenting to investors. So I know when we first went out to raise capital, um, my books, our books were a mess. I mean, they were, they were clean, but messy. And we just, it wasn't easy to really dig into the numbers. It wasn't easy to see all the information that really made it, my company valuable, like, you know, understanding our repeat guest data, understanding our, our um, average daily rates, understanding, you know, all of the metrics that made up the business wasn't easy to get to that data. And a CFO in the business would have helped us produce that really, really important much faster. So I often say to folks now that even having a part-time, like a fractional CFO, who does a management report for you once a month and 
cleans up everything and puts everything in a in a way that helps you see your data um, is really, really a good investment. I probably lost millions and millions of dollars of value in those early years because I didn't have, I wasn't presenting financial information in a way that people needed to see it and needed to understand it. So I definitely. How did that hurt your, how did that hurt your valuation? Can you share a specific example? I just think uh, because it wasn't easy to see our numbers very cleanly, it wasn't easy to get to the bottom of anything. It just automatically made people just value us lower. I think if we'd have presented a case like the investment bankers did for us, like my, that following year and said, look, hey, this is, this is how things trend in the business. This is our implied EBITDA. This is where we're at now. This is what we're going to be at in five years. Just would have been a different conversation, I think, and would have created much more confidence. And confidence is, is what investors are looking for. They're looking for sort of a really clear vision of where you're at today, what's possible in the future, and that your num you know that your numbers are strong because numbers are what basically sell things. I, I want to understand more about this mezzanine debt because I'm I'm trying to understand. So they they gave you a large debt facility to go mm-hmm. buy land and other things, mm-hmm. and they took a small piece of equity. And their recourse on the debt was the business. So they had to feel given, Pretty given the amount of debt yeah. that there was a business there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when the new owner acquired the business, they took on the obligation of paying that. What was the mezzanine debt? provider's reaction to the idea of a new person uh, or entity uh, undertaking that commitment? Like, what was their reaction when you told them, oh, we're selling the business uh, and they're going to honor the MES debt that we've taken on? Well, the great thing was they were also a shareholder, right? So everything we did with the raise was in conjunction with working with them to agree that this was this was the right deal. And, you know, we ended up with several offers at the end of the process with working with our investment banker for various different valuations, various different um, outcomes for my husband and myself, um, and various different sort of scenarios with shareholders coming in. So we looked at all of them individually by ourselves, and then we looked at them uh, with our current equity partners and and you know, communicated what we would like to do and asked how they felt about it and what was their perspective on on the whole journey. So we really had a great partnership with thinking through what's a good fit for everybody, what's a win for everybody. What was the private equity groups, the acquirer in this case, uh, what was their reaction to learn there was a 13% interest rate on this mezzanine debt when 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 that was revealed to them? Like, what was their reaction to that? That's a big obligation for them to take on, right? Um, I think they thought that was relatively high, but you know, it was not really any. I mean, obviously, when you have a, a, an amount of debt in the business, that comes off your valuation. So any debt reduces the cost to buy the business. 
So mm-hmm. I think they thought it was high, but their anticipation was always that they would put more debt into the business and recapitalize the business, and they would just take out that debt with cheaper cheaper debt. When you sold the majority of your shares, what happened to your personal guarantee? They went away. <laughs> so that was the first time you were off the hook personally for the yes. business when you had a majority recapitalization of that. Yes, Got it. Exactly. Okay. And so you did not you did not guarantee personally the mezzanine debt or the private equity company's debt after no. selling a majority ownership of the company. No, correct. What was what was that like? Because it well, <laughs> I gotta imagine that was What's a relief. That? It was a relief and it was it was I mean, I I remember the day very, very, very clearly. Um, and I remember calling our bank, just waiting to hear that the money had hit our account. Because <laughs> it's almost like surreal, right? When you've had no money in your account for like decades and suddenly a large chunk is going in there. It it was it was it was bizarre. But I the final call when we were closing the deal and all the lawyers for the other side and all our lawyers were on the call and I was on the call and all our other investors were on the call. And the, the chief lawyer went, went round the phone and said, you know, are you good to close? Are you good to close? Are you good to close? You know, and everybody sat there. Yes, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. We were, and I was like 15 million yeses. And I, I put the phone down at the end of that call. And I was like, is that it? Is that, is that, <laughs> is that done? And I burst into tears because it was just this huge sense of, relief of wow we've carried this thing for almost a decade and we finally got you know we finally got an outcome out of it you know and it, it the weight that was lifted was just i mean it was extraordinary and i i uh, i went home that evening and i my husband and i left the office and we went back home and my in-laws were at our house looking after our kids and we got home quite late. And as I pulled into the driveway, I'm thinking, this is going to be the best Christmas we've ever had. I mean, get the champagne out. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have just the most amazing, amazing weekend. And my mother-in-law opens the door and she's got a face like on her that is not looking good. And I'm like, we're ready to like collapse in a heap and, and, and get the champagne out. She says, just want you to know. The kids are both vomiting. (laughs) (laughs) And we had norovirus in the house. And over the next two weeks, like everybody, and it was Christmas, everybody, I went down with it, my husband down with it, and we would like take it in turns to mop up vomit. And I was like, well, if there's anything that's going to keep you grounded after a big major life event like that, then norovirus is going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Well, it's it's not funny, but it's uh, poignant for sure. We had norovirus in our house last year. It was oh, I don't not, want to revisit it's that. It's not a winner. Time. No, it's not a winner. <laughs> um, hey, I really appreciate you spending uh, the time and sharing the story. Are you up for a quick lightning round of questions yes. before I let you go? Let's do it. Okay, so I think I know the answer to this, but maybe there's more. I mean, you did go through quite a few rounds of, of financing, so so maybe maybe there are others that you haven't shared during the course of our interview so much, but so far. But what was the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you during the process of selling your company? 
Well, maybe maybe not the selling my company, but certainly in raising capital was was the three X preference. That was slang. Mm. Don't say yes to a three X preference, anyone. Don't do that. No, biggest mistake you made during the process of selling your company. Um, not requesting that if I was if they were ever gonna if I was ever not be the CEO, um. I should have, I would have wished I'd have asked that they would buy me out entirely rather than if I'm leaving the company, I would rather have been all out than like left with some shares and not be in the company. I see. So at some point you, you stepped down as the CEO yes. after selling, but you were unable to have shares. put your shares uh, to them at that point. Yeah. What was that like? Not my favorite. Just really hard, really hard letting go of a company you built and you care about and love um, and no longer control. It's hard. It's hard. That's that's a lot of grief. That's a lot of therapy right there. And, you know, and it's easy to say, well, you had a good payout, so move on. Um, but companies that you build and spend a long, big chunk of your life on are part of you. I mean, they are, they're like a, child in some ways i mean and yes children grow up and go to college um but it's the empty nest syndrome's challenging it's difficult yeah for sure if you can share what precipitated you leaving was there some sort of blow up or some sort of no conflict? no blow up but, uh, i think just a different a different perspective on on strategy and expectations around growth and just looking at the world in a slightly different way. Reading between the lines, they wanted to grow faster and you No, were... no, the other oh, way. Okay. I wanted to go faster. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. But, but if you, but you can totally understand that from my story and how big of a risk taker we've just listened to me talk mm -hmm. about how much risk we took over a decade. You know, we were still up for taking really big risks and making really big bets and uh, the appetite was less. Got it. Got it. What was the lowest point, and maybe we're scratching it right now, that you reached during the process of exiting your company? Lowest emotional point? Yeah, stepping down as CEO, without a doubt, the lowest, mm. worst moment of all. What was the highest moment? Oh, so many high moments. I mean, a decade, uh, a decade. In particular ago. around selling your company. Um, uh, uh, probably just uh, actually com completing the transaction. I mean, transactions are grueling. Um, and so getting to the end of the transaction actually happening is definitely a huge win. As you prepared for your exit, was there any resources that you, you drawed from, uh, you drew from, excuse me, uh, you know, any... Any books you read, any courses you took, any speakers you heard, like anything that you could point our listeners to that would be helpful for them? No, but I wish I had. <laughs> so listening to this podcast is a really, really good idea because there were so many things I didn't know. And I, I think um, because I hadn't expected to sell the company when we sold the company and we weren't particularly prepared. There are so many things you can do to be prepared. There are so many things to think about transitioning, so many things to think about your own succession um, that I think are really, really important and really, really helpful. And planning, planning for that um, is probably really, really important. What did you buy yourself 
to commemorate the win after the norovirus had finally escaped the home. <laughs> Tell me you bought yourself a trophy or something to commemorate the win. I bought myself a venture capital fund. So one of the things, one of the things I was super determined, I mean, that, that incident I, I shared with the, that crazy venture capitalist who was not my favorite person in the world. Um, I just realized, gosh, it's really hard for women raising capital. A, there are not many women building big businesses. I mean, I think the statistic of there's less than 2% of all women founders do more than a million dollars of revenue. So there's not a lot of women building big companies. There's not a lot of women getting funded. So 2% of all venture capital money goes to women. So one of the things I realized was I, I want more women to have more friendly investors and more people who are believing in them. Uh, and I, it's hard to, it's hard to be it if you can't see it. So, um, I feel a very deep sense of responsibility to help other women, uh, go and go on the journey I went on, which I do consider a, a privilege and, uh, and help them do better than I did. And so you've started a, a, a venture capital fund where you invest in Businesses led by women. Yes. Um, got it. And where can people reach you if they want to learn more about that or just say hi on social media? What's the what's the best way to do that? I am best on LinkedIn. So I am Sarah H. Dusak on LinkedIn. Um, our Enigma Ventures, our, our venture fund is called Enigma Ventures, and we are focused on investing in women in Africa. Um, but uh, you can you can follow me and you can follow my my uh, my podcast also. Sarah Dusik, we will put the pronunciation and the spelling, more importantly, of your surname in the show notes at builttocell.com and your LinkedIn profile. Uh, so my listeners can head there and grab uh, your LinkedIn profile and say hi on social. Sarah, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And there you have it for today's conversation between John and Sarah. If you enjoyed today's episode, then hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, either share this episode out with a friend or colleague or head over to Apple Podcasts where there you have a chance to leave a rating and review. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the walkthrough video of Under Canvas's tents, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms used, be sure to visit Sarah's episode page, which you can find over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Also, quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, I would encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel and type in at Built to Sell Radio, where there you have the chance to watch the full video interview between John and Sarah today. Special thanks to Dennis Labategla for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.